Hey there, I'm Heather Mulder, a former AmLaw 100 partner who just five years into my legal career found myself teetering on the edge of burnout. So that I didn't become yet another attorney burnout statistic, I decided it was time to redefine success from the inside out. Fast forward a few years and it worked. I had a thriving legal career balanced with a fulfilling life. What I learned is that you can achieve the success you want without sacrificing yourself in the process. And I'm on a mission to help you do exactly that. Join me each week for practical, unfiltered advice on how to successfully navigate the challenging legal market and succeed in both law and life. This is the Life in Law Podcast. Well, hey there, everybody. This is Heather Mulder from the Life and Law Podcast. Welcome to today's episode where we have another guest. Today, I want to introduce to you Ro Thomas. She is a former big law associate turned financial coach who believes that true wealth comes from having control. In her role as a financial coach, Ro helps lawyers master their personal finances to create freedom and choice in their lives. Through practical strategies and proven advice, she helps lawyers better manage their mindset and money so that they can improve their finances and start building wealth. In addition to being a financial coach, Roe also hosts the Wealthy-esque podcast, where she shares weekly strategies for how to improve your money mindset and manage your money to achieve true wealth. Welcome, Roe. Thank you so much, Heather. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get into kind of the topic of the day, which is money and how to manage your mindset and your money better, I want to get into your story. Um, because you are a lawyer like me turned coach and you got into a very different type of coaching than most lawyers who turn into coaches get into. Most of us do either some type of life coaching or more of what I do, which is kind of that career leadership and business coaching. But you got into something very, very different. And so I've got to, I've got to like believe that your story leads us there. So let's get into it a little bit. First and foremost, though, did you always know you wanted to be a lawyer? How did you even choose the law? Yeah, I wanted to be a lawyer since I was seven. And it started with, yes, you know, (laughs) it started with, I'm sure you probably got this too. Like, oh, you love to argue. So you should be a lawyer. Oh, you always have, you know, this, this comeback. You're always wanting to prove your point. So there was that piece from my family, but then also I loved watching legal shows with my grandmother. So I watched Law and Order and Matlock and it just seemed fun. Little did I know that that's not most of what law is, but I was like, oh, that looks fun. I could do that. And then everyone in my life was also telling me that I should be a lawyer. And so I decided at seven that I wanted to be a lawyer. So then you you went to law school. Was law school what you thought it would be? I don't know that I really had an idea of what I thought law school would be. Okay. So I can't say, you know, yes, it was or no, it wasn't. Probably no, though, because I think law school is different from what most people expect. You know, I I had done college. I had done pretty well in college without a lot of effort. And mm. that was not possible in law school. You know, you have to put in a little bit more effort to do the the kind of work that I wanted to do to get to where I wanted to be in law school. So I guess in that regard, it was not what I expected, but I didn't have super specific expectations. Did you like law school? I Some did. Of us did. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I liked it. I think for law school for me was exactly what I expected, but that's because the biggest reason I became a lawyer was from this old show called The Paper Chase. 
um, I don't know if you know what that is, but it was about two guys in law school with a really horrifically hellacious, hard professor. And for whatever reason, I liked that. I liked the bantering. I liked the the legal theory. I liked the arguments. I liked, you know, I liked all of that. And that's what kind of drew me into the law in the first place. So law school for me was like exactly that. And yeah, it was stressful and yeah, it was hard, but I actually liked it. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) same. And you know, now that you say that, I remember one of my uh, professors in college knew that I was interested in law school and he gave me the book 1L. I think it was... um, I think it was Scott Tarot was the author's name, but I could be completely wrong in thinking of somebody else. But that book was his recount of being a 1L and just goes through like what 1L life was like. I think the book was a bit more intense than my actual 1L experience was, but I did have, you know, I guess a little bit of an inkling of what law school might be like because of that book. Now, here's what's interesting, though, is I don't think practicing law is anything like law school. Oh, definitely not. Which is a total shock to a lot of people when they get out and they start practicing. So give us an indication. So what what kind of law did you go into and what kind of law firm did you join? So I was a trademark lawyer and I went into uh, big law. So how was that experience? <laughs> it was good. You know, I got some really good advice while I was still in law school from a woman I had met who was also at a big firm. She was a partner at that firm and I had met her at some sort of networking event or something like that and kept in touch with her. And so she told me coming into the firm that no one is going to monitor, you know, what I'm doing, you know, help me set my schedule, tell me that I'm working too hard or any of that. She said, I had to set that schedule up front and set those boundaries. And so I should set working hours that I pretty much stick to. So whatever those hours are going to be, you know, make it reasonable, but have these times. And this is when I'm answering emails. And after that time, I'm not. And so I did that. And I remember feeling very uncomfortable at first because as a you know first year, a lot of people were emailing us with different assignments. It'd be late at night. And my classmates would respond to those emails. And I didn't, I would see them come in but I just didn't respond and I would respond in the morning. I think that helped me to kind of weather the hard times, if you will, of big law because I did maintain those boundaries. And so I never felt like I was burning the candle at both ends. I will say that there were times, of course, that felt more stressful than others and things like that. But in terms of feeling like I had to be responding to things late at night or early in the morning, you know, both times I just didn't have that pressure because I followed that advice and I had my set times that I was in with, you know, of course, exceptions. Like if there were, say, a filing due and we hadn't finished it, it's not like, oh, well, good luck. I leave at six. You know, of course, I would still get on and help with those things. But my day to day was not like that. So uh, you bring up a really interesting point that I want to take a moment and talk about for a second because of the number of very senior attorneys, either senior counsel, senior associates trying to make partner or even partners themselves who come to me talking about how they have no boundaries, they have no life. And they initially, they want to talk about how it's the expectations of clients and it's the expectations of colleagues and peers and the expectations of the firm and the profession. And I get it because I've been there. That's where I was a couple years into my career. But there is this moment where you realize this actually has nothing to do with them and everything to do with you and your boundaries. 
And one of the kind of pushbacks I get a lot when I, I bring this topic up, and I will, I will give you an example of somebody who said this to me when I said, you need boundaries. Well, it's not like I can leave at 5.30 or 6 every day, Heather. Never did I say that. You know, you're creating this straw man that doesn't exist to excuse the fact that you've never created boundaries for yourself. Yes, there are going to be exceptions. Sometimes, you know, when I was in the middle of my busiest season as a finance lawyer in December, trying to close a deal by the end of the month, well, yeah, that meant late nights a lot for that month. But I all knew I knew it was part of the job. And that's what we did have to do at that time of year. But it was a limited time period, right? Then everything would come to a crashing halt. And, you know, but that didn't mean that in March, April, May, I would respond to clients or colleagues, or even when I was a younger associate, partners emails at 10 p.m. when I saw them come across, or even at 8 p.m. when I saw them come across when I was already at home. And one thing I learned is if you do set those boundaries, number one, you train other people to live within them. Number two, if they refuse to, it tells you very clearly who you do and do not want to work with because there are people out there who you don't want to work with, clients included. And number three, they will tell you if there's an exception. They will learn, oh, well, she'll get back to me tomorrow and that's totally fine. But if it's not, they'll tell you, hey, I actually need this tonight. And they'll ask the question, do you have availability? Can you do it? right? So you're training them to be more reasonable. And the thing that to note is most people who are sending emails late are not expecting you to get back to them and do the work that night. It's when they're thinking about it. It's when they're in the midst of something. And so of course, they're going to send you the email because, you know, that's when it's on their mind and they might forget if they don't do it. You, you got to remember that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And something that you said there reminded me of another piece of this partner's advice she said, you have to distinguish between external pressure and internal pressure, because sometimes there is that expectation, like you said, where it's the, you know, the end of the year and you're trying to close this deal. Yes, there is that expectation that you be there to get the things done. But a lot of times it's that we're type A and we're trying to go above and beyond and we're doing all the things. And so it's that internal pressure that we put on ourselves to be there and, you know, that kind of thing. Because like you mentioned your client who's like, oh, well, it's not like I can leave at, you know, such and such time. After my kids were born, I left at 430. Now I might have still, you know, gotten back on. And maybe part of that too is different firms have different cultures or, right. and even different groups within the same firm have different cultures. But my group was very much where as long as you get your work done, they weren't concerned about what time you were coming in, what time you were leaving. And so I decided after having my kids, like I wanted to have this time with them. And so I'll leave at 4.30, but I also would come in a little earlier too. Yeah. And that's an important, well, a couple of points to make that internal pressure that we put on ourselves. We often don't identify as internal number one. And number two, even when we do, we sometimes think, well, but this is what it, it's required if I want to do the best to be the best. And you've got to remind yourself and remember that you can't be your best if you're not showing up as your best and you can't show up as your best if you're not actually taking care of yourself, which does mean boundaries. Yes. <laughs> That's part exactly. of taking care of yourself. The other thing I'd note is firm cultures can be very different. I think a lot of lawyers who are in one particular culture assume they're all the same. 
not all firms are the same. Even not all big law firms are the same. And not all groups within a firm are even the same. There are many cultures. So some of this is about understanding where you need your boundaries and starting to implement them. And under and if if they're not going to be respected where you are, needing to find a better fit for you because it's just not, it doesn't make it a bad place or bad people, but it's not the right fit for you. 100% interesting agree that you left early, I made the opposite choice. So for me, because of the way my clients were, and they they always would build up as the day went on, right? And so I just could not do the go home early thing. I just, I couldn't, it did not work for me, but I could come in late. And it was interesting because it was hard for me at first because I'm, an, I'm a morning person who loves to get up and go in early and like get the work done before the, the phone got started. But after I had my kids, I realized, you know what? I need to spend that time with my kids. So I would get up early and work out and do the things for me. And then I would have a couple of hours with my kids before the nanny would show up or before I took them into like late daycare or whatever it was, um, depending on their age level and where we were at that point. But that was my time. And I guarded it like nothing else. And I would come in instead of at 7.30 or 8 in the morning at 10 in the morning, you know, so that I would have that time with them. Yeah. And so you've got to figure out, y'all, what's best for you. Everybody has a different way, but it is absolutely doable. And it is doable in big law too, because both of us did that in big law firms. And I did that as a partner as well. <laughs> so yeah, I think the the underlying point with both of our stories is that it's possible to create a practice that works for you, for your lifestyle. Yes. And to your point, maybe that means going to a different firm or working with some different people. Because with my boundaries, I noticed there were some people that maybe I did a project or two for, and then they never came to me for more work. That's perfectly fine. If you don't like you know, that I yep. don't answer emails or calls after X time, then we're not a good fit to work together. And that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So how long did you practice? Seven years. Seven years. So tell me what, like, how did this transitioning out of law and into being a financial coach happen for you? Yeah, it started when I was maybe about four years into practice. That's not true. Two years into practice. It was when I had my first child and the firm that I was with at the time, I said at the time, it's the only firm that I worked with, uh, but they allowed for a part-time kind of policy where you could do a percentage of the billable requirement for that percentage of your salary. And so I was interested in taking advantage of that and you know doing a little bit less in terms of hours and things like that after I had my son. And so I was on maternity leave. I was looking at the policy and talking to my husband about it. And so we looked at our finances to see if we could make, you know, a cut work. And our finances were a mess. Uh, we had a <laughs> lot of student loans. We had, you know, a mortgage, car payments, like all of this, where we had all of these monthly payments coming out. And we just didn't have the wiggle room to be able to have less income coming in. And I hated that because I don't like being told what to do. I don't like feeling constrained in that way. And so that set me on the path of learning about finance because it's like, if we didn't have all these payments going out, then we could easily take this cut. And so I started learning about personal finance. And then a few years in, I started a blog about 2018. I started a blog and it was just a general like, hey, this is what we're doing. This is how much debt we paid off. This is this new thing I learned, you know, whatever. 
And some of my friends and colleagues would ask about things and I would do a one-off session helping people, you know, set up their budget or helping them map out their debt payment plan or things like that. And around 2019, I was thinking like, oh, I could really help lawyers with this. Like I was having these conversations with people where they wanted to do something different. Some people wanted to be at, you know, a different stage in their career. Like maybe they didn't want to be in a firm anymore. They wanted to go in-house or even leave the law altogether, but they felt like they couldn't make that move because of their finances. And that reminded me so much of how I felt wanting to do the part-time thing and feeling like I couldn't because of my finances. And so I just noticed this trend with a number of different people I was speaking with. And so I was like, oh, I should do something to help lawyers. Maybe the blog could be for lawyers. And then of course it gets put on the back burner because life and you know all of the things. So I didn't think anything of it until the world starts falling apart in 2020. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I've been saying for, I think at that point it had been a year, six months, you know, something like that, where I was saying, okay, I think I could help lawyers, but I hadn't actually taken steps to do anything with it. Uh -huh. And I was thinking about how many people get to the end of their lives and are, you know, I, they'll say things like, I want it to start a business or I want it to go back to school or I want it to write a book or whatever it was. And so I didn't want to get to some point decades down the line still talking about how I want to do this thing to help lawyers with their finances. And so I started putting myself out there on social media, sharing tips that I had learned over the years, and then offering to help people on a one-on-one -on -one basis with their finances. And so that's how it all got started. I started doing that in 2020. And then in September 2021 is when I transitioned from the firm to the business full-time. Awesome. Okay. So a couple of things. First off, and this is not finance related, but I think this is a big point that you make that's really important. This later in life thing where we look back with regret, I can personally attest to that because of my cancer. Like, And I've talked about this before, but for anybody who has not listened to these specific past episodes, you may want to go back and listen because I think there's a lot you can learn from people who've been through these types of things. I can tell you my, my cancer diagnosis was not good initially. There were some assumptions being made that were thankfully incorrect based on how aggressive my cancer was. But I, I had this moment where I sat down and I remember thinking about my funeral, like who would come, what would they say about me? What impact have I made? And I compared it to the funeral of my grandfather who lived a pretty good long life and had impacted so many people. And I had kind of known that, but it became very clear at his funeral based on the number of people who showed up and what they were saying to us. And I'm like, I don't like, no, this is something I need to do better. Right. And there were things that I knew I needed to do better as a mom. And there were things that like, there were all these things and the regrets you have, have very little to do with the money, <laughs> the accolades that you get, the career things, the big career like goals that we set out to achieve and have a lot more to do with who am I? How am I showing up? What are the things that could have made a bigger impact in other people's lives? You know, that kind of a thing. And so I would just note that, right? And I do think that the pandemic was an opportunity for a lot of people to sit back and think through that. I think it was the one gift we got from it. 
The sad part is it's really easy to go through something like that, think you're going to make changes, start, but then get sucked back into life as it was or just life living without thinking through and really doing something about it. So it's just something I wanted to note that these are the things you think about. And I would say the one thing I learned is I don't I don't think it's possible to never have a regret, but I don't want those big ones, right? I'd rather have a regret that I failed at something that I tried and it didn't work out. And maybe I could have tried something a little differently or made a different decision, but at least I did try, right? <laughs> As opposed to thinking, oh my God, I always thought about that, but never even tried. There's a difference. Yeah. That was exactly the thought process that I went through in thinking about leaving the firm and going into my business full time, where because initially I thought that I would do the part time, you know, maybe 50% or so at my firm and do this on the side as well. But I realized that having the full time to devote to this, I would be able to help many more people. And I thought about like, okay, if I were to go full time and I failed, it didn't work out, what's the worst case scenario, right? What's the worst that could happen here? Worst case scenario, I have to go and get another job. Mm-hmm. Well, I already have a job. So I'm living the worst case right now. And then best case, it's you know more successful than I could even imagine that it could be. And I impact so many people and I'm just have, I have all of this time. I'm doing what I love mm. for my career, right? Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I really enjoyed practicing law too. I loved my practice area. I had an amazing group, which I think helped. Um, but I didn't feel like I was making the impact that I am now making. I worked in big law, working for large corporations, you know, enforcing their trademarks and things like that, which was fun, but it just didn't feel as impactful as helping someone to manage their finances better and to feel less stressed and to feel more confident knowing exactly how they're going to pay this off or, you know what I'm saying? Like that more personal impact. Yeah. It's funny because you and I are so similar in that. Um, You know, I loved practicing. I loved my clients. I loved my peers and colleagues. I loved my firm. There were so many things I loved about it. I was not one of those super unhappy lawyers who just needed a big change. But the experience, the cancer experience specifically, and frankly, a lot of it had to do with the people who came and took care of me and my family during that time. People who, some of them, we hardly knew at the time and how impactful that was, how very, very small things made a huge difference even. It stuck with me and made me realize that I wanted to show up differently in this next phase and make a more personal impact on somebody's life. And so mm-hmm. for me, if it was like, if I just help five to 10 people through this, it's it's enough, right? Maybe it's not enough to make a living out of it, but it's enough to have been willing to try. And I know I could at least do that. And so that was kind of my impetus for leaving law and starting this full time. So we're very similar, I think, in that. Yes, we definitely are. A lot of parallels in our stories. Yeah. So, okay. So tell me, I find that a lot of lawyers don't like to admit they have problems around money, right? And I don't know if problem is really the right word, but that's how they think of it. I have a money problem. I make a lot, but 
<laughs> I don't have enough here to do all the things I want. I have a lot of debt. I have, you know, and there, the debt problem is a big issue that law school, thankfully, or thank you very much, law school, not really thank you, but you know, thank you, <laughs> um, provides right. to us. And so where do you find kind of when people first come to you, where do you find them? And what is that mindset that they have around money and their so-called problems with money? There is a lot of shame mm-hmm. around it. And I think there's a lot of shame around money generally in our society, but I think that it's heightened for lawyers because we are used to being, you know, type A, the ones who've made it. We are used to doing things the right way, you know, all of that. And so I think when there's this area that we aren't managing the way that we want to or the way that we think we should, then there's a lot of shame around it. So there's definitely that a lot of what you said with thinking that I've got this problem or I've got a lot of debt. A lot of people think that their debt is really overwhelming. Um, and so they they don't know how to manage it, what to do to pay it off, that kind of thing. And then there's just the general unknown, if you will, with their money. Most people aren't really familiar with their cash flow, how much money they're bringing in versus how much they're spending out and where that money is going and that kind of thing. And I think when you have those unknowns like that, then it makes it feel scary. It makes it feel more overwhelming maybe than if you had more of a handle on it. I often liken it to a child who's afraid of the dark or who's afraid of, (laughs) you know, the monster in the, the corner. But when you shine a light on it, it's just a jacket on the chair. You know, the same kind of thing with our finances, where when you have all these unknowns, you don't know what's happening. It can feel scarier than if we just shine a light on it and see exactly what's happening. So at least you have the lay of the land and you can create the plan to move yourself from where you are now to where you want to be. And I would guess, knowing lawyers the way I do, that the answer, the starting point is shining that light and and getting more clear around, okay, what am I bringing in? What am I spending? And so that you can then make some better decisions around it. I mean, you, you can be intentional, but the thing that is stopping them is that shame and embarrassment and not wanting to like even do it, right? No, that's exactly right. So how do you deal with that? Now, maybe by, by the time they come to you and hire you, they're already at least to the point where like, oh, no, I'm willing to. But do you do you encounter that, like, I guess, kind of that internal, like, oh, no, but I don't want to. And if so, how how do you help your clients to get comfortable enough to where they're willing to do it? So a big part of the work that I do with my clients is helping them to see money more objectively. Because I think a lot of times that that shame, that unwillingness to look at the finances, all of that comes from the way that they're thinking about it. A lot of times I think lawyers think about their finances almost as like this scorecard, this picture of who they are, you know, Mm. like, oh, I have this much debt or I have this net worth. And so I'm somehow bad because I'm not managing my money well. And I don't know if I'm articulating that properly, but it's like the the money is some sort of reflection on Mm. them as people versus Mm. it being a separate thing, this 
you know, yes, it's something that we need in our lives. We use it every day, but it doesn't mean anything about you as a person, even if it's not where you want it to be. And so a big part of what we do is helping them to decouple who they are from the money that they have or whatever their money situation is. So that's the first part. And then the second part is now we are not thinking about money as a reflection on ourselves. And these things happen kind of in tandem. It's not like a step one, right. we do right. this and then step two. But you know, the, they happen in tandem. But the next step is actually getting those pictures of what's happening. And so we're going to go through, sometimes I do it with them, but often they take the tools, they go through and look at the numbers themselves, and then we can come back and talk about your thoughts about it, your feelings about it, and start to help you shift those thoughts and feelings if it's, again, looking back at the the reflection of me and having these negative thoughts, these negative feelings about myself because of what mm-hmm. I'm seeing here. A couple of things come from that. And, and just based on what I know on mindset and, you know, because all of us coaches a lot of what we work on is really mindset um, because we, a lot of times everybody knows the things they could be doing. It's the, the, the stuff going on inside of your head. That's preventing you from even facing that to do it. <laughs> right. And I'm guessing that once you kind of get into that first step, that's when it opens up to being more willing, because what I find is the more we ignore, the more we pretend, the more we like shy away, the worse it feels, the more the fear grows, the worse, like, and so once you do shine the light, it's like, oh, this isn't as bad as I imagined it would be. Do you see that a lot? Definitely. I see that a lot. And then I also think the looking at your finances more regularly almost helps to desensitize is not quite the word, but you know what I mean? Like you're exposed to it over and over again. And so it becomes just a piece of, you know, life, just something that happens versus, you know, it being this unknown thing that it's a big deal and I'm afraid to look at it. Yeah, absolutely. A question I have is, do you also see that at least some lawyer clients have shame around the fact that they even make a lot of money in the first place? I have seen that some. But what I see more often is people in denial that they are, you know, say upper middle class or upper class. Everyone thinks they're middle class. I'm like, <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> I feel you're like not at all. <laughs> that thought process is somewhat related to this. Oh, but I don't I can't admit that I'm that person for whatever reason. And there's somehow shame around the fact that they do make good money and they do make, you know, have quote unquote, a lot of money. If you're just at least looking at what they're earning. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that I see that a lot. I've, and, and not so much in my clients, although it does come up from time to time, but just practicing for 18 years and kind of watching lawyers and how they behave when it comes to money and, and noticing that there's some level of that. Um, and I, I just wonder how much of that also relates to this inability to manage it. Because if you're not willing to admit you make it enough of it and you don't want to go there because you feel embarrassed or ashamed or guilty or whatever the word is for you, then I would think you're not 
then going to manage it very well. Yeah. Oh, I would 100% agree with that. And I can see how what you're seeing is almost another side of the same coin mm-hmm. of what I'm seeing with people thinking that they're yeah. middle class versus where they are. And I think you're 100% spot on with the fact that if you believe, so for example, a lot of people believe that wealthy people are bad, right? Or that having money is bad or you know whatever that that is like associating the money with something negative. Uh-huh. And so if that's the case, then you're not going to manage your money in a way that you have more of it. Right? right. You're not going to take those specific actions to have more money because in your mind, even if it's a subconscious thing, in your mind having money is bad and you don't want to be bad. So I can see that for sure. Yeah, it's just an interesting thing that I've noticed and I I actually had a podcast earlier this year on this very topic because it came up with a client and I would just say this, a go back and listen to the podcast if that's something you think you might suffer from, but I mean, money isn't bad. There's nothing wrong with making a lot of money. You get to choose what you do with that money. (laughs) Yeah. No, I say all the time that money just amplifies who you are already, Mm. you know, and money is just a tool that we use in life. And so it doesn't have to be good or bad. And it doesn't have any reflection on who we are as people. But if you are a generous person, when you have more money, you'll probably be more generous. If you are a stingy person, if you get more money, you'll just have more money to be stingy with, you know? But I do think that um, separating out the money from who we are and looking at it more objectively and not as good or bad lends itself to managing it better. I think that's critical to being able to manage it better. Absolutely. Okay. So once people kind of face down their fears and their shame and their guilt and their all this other stuff around money, start to figure out, you know, doing looking back and figure out, okay, what am I bringing in versus what am I spending? How do you tend to, and I know every case is very different, right? Everybody's very individual, but you probably see some themes that people could take away with, you know, walk away with today. What are your kind of top tips for how to start managing your money better? So number one, I would say is get really clear on what's important to you. So I have my clients do, you know, the top, say five things that are important to you in life, not necessarily related to looking back at what you spent on, but just in life, what are the top five things? So for some people it's, you know, family, it's religion, it's, you know, these things that aren't necessarily tied to money, but then sometimes people do have things that are tied to money. Like I like good food. I like convenience. I like looking good, you know, things like that. But the reason that I I have my clients do that is we want to see how much of the money that you're spending is going to these things versus how much you're spending on everything else. And Mm -hmm. often when we get in there, they're spending a lot of money on stuff that they don't even care about. And they just don't realize that they're spending so much. And so when we can look at the things that are important to you, then you can start making sure that you are using your money in ways that support those things. So that's number Absolutely. one. Absolutely. Okay. So just a comment on that. And I will say, because we had to do that when I left the firm. I mean, I was a partner in a firm. I made good money, <laughs> right? And not that my husband doesn't make good money, but we had a dual income that allowed us a really nice lifestyle. And we had to take a look because I was starting from scratch and I knew it would take a while. And frankly, I've been very intentional about how I built this business because my kids 
were one of the reasons I did it. And I knew I didn't want to work over a certain amount. I wanted to be more flexible and to be there, which meant not growing this business as big as I could, right? And I've done that very intentionally. So we had to do this kind of like look back. It wasn't that we were spending, you know, we were still saving and we we're still able to, you know, whatever, but we were making a big life change. And it's interesting when you do that, how, how much money you might be spending. Like we went, we went out to eat a lot more. We went, you know, we, there were a lot of things we just really cut back on. Cause I'm like, that's not important. What was mm-hmm. important to us was paying for our kids' school because where they are was very important to them and their education into their like social and mental health even. Um, and that was kind of the preeminent thing. And so a lot of clothing went out the door too. A lot of like stuff I didn't actually need though. <laughs> like, you know, it wasn't that important to me at the end of the day and I wouldn't get to need it if I was working from home. And so, I, you know, I think, I think people would be surprised if they went through with that mindset of what are my real priorities and determine that first, it's a lot easier than to cut stuff out than you'd imagine. I completely agree. And one of the things that is that tends to be most surprising for people is how much they spend on things like eating out, especially with the rise of services like DoorDash and Uber Eats and all that. There tend to be extra fees on those. And so people, you know, think that they're spending X and usually it's like one and a half times that, right? So when you can have this idea of the things that are really important to you and then go back through what I actually spent on in the last month, last month or two, you know, you can see okay, maybe I don't care so much about food. And so maybe I don't spend as much as I'm spending on food. Right. That's just an example. And then the other thing- There are things that people spend a lot of money on. They don't realize how much. Yes. Especially because it's like, it feels like a small purchase in the moment, but over the course of a month, that adds up a lot. And over the course of a year, it really adds up. Yeah, that too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, so that was step one. What else would you yes. would you do? The other thing I would say is to make sure that you're balancing your spending among your needs, wants, and goals. Because often people are spending a lot of money on the things they need and want, and then the goals just kind of go out the window, right? So that's why you find people not saving the way that they want to or paying off debt or whatever, because the money is not there because it's going to these other things. And so one guideline that I give there is try to keep your needs to about half of your take-home pay or less. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I say that is if you have 50% going to these needs, right? Your housing, your, your food, I guess, beyond restaurants, right? Groceries and things like that, transportation, your utilities, just things that you need, then that's 50% of your money that's available for things that you want and for goals that you have. What often happens is people are in housing or in cars or things like that that are a bit too expensive for their incomes. And so Mm -hmm. when you've got these large expenses taking up a huge percentage of your income, it makes it a lot harder to do the things that you want and still achieve your goals. So that's the, the guideline there. 50% going to your needs. And I say about 25% or less going to your housing and 10% or less going to your transportation. And that gives you plenty of room for the other things that you want to do. Now, what about, I'm sure you get pushback on the housing, especially maybe even the cars, um, because 
there is something about, I don't know what it is. And it's not just lawyers, but lawyers definitely have this problem where we overspend on luxury cars, wanting to be in the right, you know, this is not something thankfully I ever cared about. We always had Hondas that we got from an uncle who owns a Honda dealership. So it was really awesome because we got it for just over cost. Nice. But, um, but the housing, I'm guessing that's a little harder. People kind of, that gets caught up into who they are somewhat too. Yes. Sometimes. Yeah. And one thing that I tell people is like when you're thinking about, especially if you're not where you want to be financially, mm-hmm. right? When you're thinking about what you're spending on the house, the car, you know, whatever, you have to think about, is it more important to me to stay in this house, to stay in this car or to pay off this debt, to free up this money, to save, to have that flexibility, to go to the different job that maybe pays a little bit less. It's okay if it's more important to you to stay in the house or to stay in the car, but know that that is the intentional choice that you're making, right? I want you to make the choice intentionally versus feeling like, oh, well, I just can't do this. No, you can do it. It's just like we talked about with your practice. There are so many different ways to have the practice that you want, just like there are so many different ways to have the lifestyle that you want, the financial situation that you want. You just have to decide what's more important to you. And so if it's more important to be in this house or this car, perfectly fine. But then don't beat yourself up about why I'm not able to save or I'm not able to pay off debt if that's not as important to you. Give yourself that permission. Like you don't have to do those things just because you think that that's what you're supposed to do or what other people say you should do. Well, and I think, you know, oftentimes if somebody isn't initially making the choice to sell the house or downgrade or whatever it is, they might eventually get there because they then decide they're ready. Um, Sometimes I think we're just not ready in the moment. But the biggest issue is when you don't give yourself that choice in the first place. You know, really, a lot of people do end up choosing, no, this is actually more important to me and I don't need this. I can, you know, downsize. I can rent for a couple of years so that I can then one day pay off all this debt have a plan for that and then go buy the house I actually do want and can afford, right? Yeah. And something that you said there, though, also reminds me of the way that we often think about things. Mm. It's like there are ways to decrease your housing costs that aren't sell the house. Yeah. But we often are like, oh, that's what it has to be. I heard a story once I'm in a lot of uh, personal finance forums and listen to podcasts and all of that. But this was a situation where uh, two women had gotten divorced and they wanted to stay in the area that they were, like with this the school that their kids were in, and they couldn't afford on their own to stay in the houses that they were in with their spouses. Okay. And so these women went in together on a house or one of them moved into the other's house or something like that because being able to split the costs made it more affordable for both of them. And their kids were able to still stay in that school district. And so it's thinking outside the box. Like, what are all the things that you believe about money or you believe have to be? And how could it be that something else is true? Like, what else could Mm -hmm. be true about the situation? Don't assume and get creative if you, you you know. Exactly. Because you never know. I mean, things are rarely black and white. Yeah, well, yeah, but we lawyers love to see everything is black and white, right? Yeah, but we got to find the gray because then <laughs> yeah. you can get to a creative situation like, you know, these two people did. 
So before I let you go, a final question before any final thoughts that you have, I would expect that sometimes might people might go a little too far in setting a budget and set, you know, so what, um, what advice would you give somebody who is getting a hold of their finances, setting a budget for themselves, you know, trying to stick to it? What is the potential, you know, problem with that? And how would they steer clear of that? So I have definitely seen people that go too far. And one way that I teach my clients to combat that is to have fun money. So you have this money that you set aside that is just for you to have fun. That actually came out of my husband and I having some fights, fights, <laughs> like some tension early on in our marriage about things that the other person was spending on. So like for me, I spent a lot on makeup. He was spending a lot on coffee and I don't drink coffee and he doesn't wear makeup. And he's just like, <laughs> well, why are you spending so much on this? And why are you doing that? And so we decided to have this money set aside that we could each spend however we wanted to. But that has also translated to my clients who don't share finances with a partner. It's a way for them to have this money set aside that they can spend however they want to, but know that their needs, their goals are still accounted for, are still taken care of. So I would encourage everyone to set aside some amount of money that they spend on whatever they want to because having that money set aside to spend however you want kind of helps you to stay on track with the other things. You know that you've got some fun that you can have. You've got some money that you can spend there, no questions asked, and it's not taking you off track from your other goals. Yeah, I would say you don't want to so, you know, be so self-restrictive that like people do, with, I think of it like as dieting, right? This is the whole point, I would think, is to set up really great habits for the long term to live by for always that feel good, that enable you to pay the things you need and also to put forth money towards your goals and then have the fun for the things you want that aren't needs and might not be goals, but are there for you to have fun with. Just like with a diet, you want to have a healthy overall kind of habit of eating pretty healthy but allowing yourself to enjoy some good things that aren't technically healthy upon occasion <laughs> so exactly. that you can have fun. <laughs> exactly. Because I find sometimes people try to deprive themselves too much, right? And you are living in this deprived state. I can't have this. I can't have that. I can't do this. I can't go here. I can't, you know? And after a while, it gets to the point where you're like, well, I just want to have fun. And then you just go completely the other way. And it ruins all of the progress that you might have made doing the thing, you know, the the deprivation. Mm -hmm. I liken it a lot to crash dieting where people are like, I can't do this. I can't eat this. I can't, you know, I can't, can't, can't. And maybe you get to that, that goal, but it's not sustainable. Yeah. And so setting up some allowances for yourself, both with dieting, with your finances, allows you to do it in a more sustainable way so that when you get to the goals, you're able to keep going with the lifestyle that you have created for yourself versus it being this crash diet approach of let me just cut out everything and get to this goal really quickly. I think that's great advice. And I think it's great advice to pretty much end on any final thoughts before I let you go. If anyone out there is 
struggling with their finances or is feeling overwhelmed or anything like that, know that this is not last. This is not the end for you. You can turn things around. You didn't get into the situation overnight, so you're probably not going to get out overnight. But if you will take the steps toward the goals that you have, if you will make decisions that lead you to the place that you want to be, you will eventually get there. Just know that it does not have any bearing on who you are as a person. You are still 100% worthy, all of the things, Mm -hmm. even if you have credit card debt or student loans or whatever else you think might be an issue with your finances. So just know that this is not the end. You can turn things around and it doesn't have any bearing on you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Why don't you tell us uh, where people can find you? Yeah, you can find me at my website, which is rowthomas.com. And then I'm also Row Thomas on LinkedIn. All right, people, please go find her, follow her. I do follow her on LinkedIn. She's got some wonderful information and uh, news out there that people can follow. And just thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you again for having me. Thank you for listening to the Life and Law Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode and aren't yet a follower or subscriber, be sure to hit the follow and or subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode. For show notes and free resources to help you succeed in both life and law, including the Life and Law Roadmap, visit lifeandlawpodcast.com.